Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. Another day, another pop culture hyperfixation. You know I love a cult documentary, and this week I watched two three-part series that I think a lot of you have watched, slash I'd recommend you probably watch them before listening to this, but I'll try to give enough background to refresh your memory or enough context if you haven't seen them, but paired with commentary and ancillary research, so it's not too redundant. One is called Love Has Won on HBO Max, and the other is called Escaping Twin Flames on Netflix. And that cult has another doc on Prime that came out recently, a la the Firefest rubric of dueling documentaries. And speaking of Firefest, I mean, that documentary was like textbook schadenfreude, where other people's misfortune or poor decision-making is kind of a comedic spectacle. And I think with cults, it's a bit tricky because some of their beliefs are so incomprehensibly ridiculous. It's fun to joke about, and I will. But on the other hand, it's legitimately sad why people pursue these gurus and predatory organizations that end up controlling and then ruining their life. But I love talking about them because I think they get at something deeper about our society. I think there's something really scary about how easily these things are platformed and how you can find them or they can find you in a vulnerable state. Actually, recently I was doing one of my quarterly rituals, which is watching all the clips of the hot priest from Fleabag on YouTube. And I came across this famous monologue that Fleabag does. And I was like, damn, this is kind of a poetic way to think about why people would join a cult and, you know, even almost desire having their decisions be made for them and someone else to have control over their life. And in the context of this scene in Confession, you know, right before the priest tells her to kneel, she's in a, a state, a very vulnerable state of grief and says this. I want someone to tell me what to wear in the morning. <laughs> okay, well, I think there are people who can... No, I want someone to tell me what to wear every morning. I want someone to tell me what to eat, what to like, what to hate, what to rage about, what to listen to, what band to like, what to buy tickets for, what to joke about, what not to joke about. I want someone to tell me what to believe in, who to vote for and who to love and how to tell them. I just think I want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, because so far I think I've been getting it wrong. Such a good scene. Hearing it framed like that, I I don't know. I felt that way before to a degree when you're so down and out, like you don't even trust yourself to be making your own decisions. You know, in bouts of depression and arrows of low self-esteem, in her case, grief or whatever it may be, like when life isn't working out for us and we feel like we're making the wrong choices, we want a formula for how to be. And if you find one of these gurus or, like I said, the algorithm finds you in these moments, you'll find yourself in the wrong place at the right time. And I think we assume the people that get sucked into these things are a certain type of person that's different from us, who's, you know, far more gullible and desperate and 
that we'd be able to sniff out their intentions. But I don't always think that's the case. And that's why I like linking it to self-help or MLMs or church, because I think we all have succumbed to some sort of cult-like structure, whether we realize it or not. Because really anything that dupes you into believing it's fair for your voluntary participation in something that doesn't pay you to demand your time, your money, your commitment, your adherence to arbitrary rules, you know, in exchange for just being allowed on the inside. I don't know. If you think you're above doing that, I gently ask you if you've ever been a part of a church or perhaps even a sorority. I know we've drawn this parallel before, but I like to remind people to access their empathy because I know my audience. And there's a shocking amount of Beths that used to be recruitment chairs. And <laughs> it's not the same thing in terms of, you know, intent and damage. But like to me, it, it's the best way for me to understand how I too just wanted to be a part of something that defined me at a, in a vulnerable life phase when I needed friendship, places to go, belonging. And it's weird to think about my heart being warm and having a tear in my eye as I chanted 1800s ritual from a dark candlelit room. But like I believed we had something special and different than everyone else. I don't think sororities are like nefarious cults necessarily. I mean, there are issues with Greek life, but I just that's always how I bring myself back down to earth when I'm like, I would never. <laughs> Because you think about all the rules, mandatory meetings and fees, the fines for not attending things, the intensity of recruitment and being underslept and forbidden to drink or be around boys for two weeks during it, and the requirements for how you must look and act while wearing letters. Like, that's not all that different. We weren't encouraged to, like, lose all contact with our families. Like, we branded outsiders GDIs. Like, that's rude. Goddamn independence. Good for them. Um, and. and in my experience, people were getting kicked out of the sorority like, yeah, we didn't talk to them anymore, which is really shitty. And when I think about all these things, that I'm like, why did I participate if I didn't want to? But it's like, well, because once you're in, everything's about the organization, not you. To stay with the in crowd, to belong, and to have the privilege of like a brand of sorts preceding your reputation on campus, you comply. But like, that's, yeah, what I wanted in the years that I felt lost in my own identity. It felt easier to have something else to find me. So I didn't have to weather the tension of trying to convince people I was cool or likable. Or perhaps you weren't in a sorority and still think you're above it all. And if that's the case, perhaps you're a Swifty, for example. Which, and I am one. And to that, I would gently ask you if you recently, you know, bought an album a second time that you already bought and got hyped for songs you've already heard to support the mission of, as the kids appropriately call her, mother. Thankfully, we're not yet in mother god territory, but I sometimes fear we are close. I am beyond supportive of the plight of Taylor's version. It's been so fun. I'm all for her owning her catalog. But it's a huge ask to get people to buy an album re-recorded that they probably already bought and then to put out multiple versions of the album so you can't get all the songs. And this that's part of what's awesome about her fandom. But sometimes I look at my iTunes library and I have full page scrolls and scrolls and scrolls of, of duplicates of songs that I've bought twice many years apart. And I just have I just have to laugh. Would I, I there's so few people I would do that for. No, that's not an actual cult. But like I, I think if we have trouble empathizing with people that do crazy things just because they worship an idol, we must ask ourselves why and how when Taylor Swift accidentally released eight seconds of static on iTunes, 
we shot it to number one on the charts. It, it becomes not about what it is, but about who we're supporting, about like becoming such a devoted follower or fan or whatever of somebody that you kind of blindly support anything they do. And there are people and pop stars and organizations and fandoms and sports teams and endless other things that we love that may drain us of our finances and free time due to our support. But you don't really care because it brings you joy and entertainment, sometimes hope, lyrics like Pubwe, and most of all, belonging. And yeah, as long as none of these things deprive you of food and sleep, you know, deny you medical treatment you know, overemphasize gender roles, make you cut out your family or like drink a bonks amount of colloidal silver, you're probably good. But I I always try to not make it entirely about uh, mocking the members and believers because I think we've all looked for what they're looking for at some point, perhaps to a lesser degree, but still. And I think there's something really interesting about the lengths people will go to for something as simple as belonging or to be loved. For questions as um, big and unanswerable as our broader purpose or what our future holds, as if anybody could have all the answers in a universe marked more by what we don't know than what we do. But I don't know. In this crazy life and in these crazy times, people can exploit all that we don't know and claim that they do know and that they are literally the only answer to life's biggest existential questions that can never be proven or disproven. So you ultimately combat your unknowing with essentially more unknowing, forced to put all your blind trust into a person or thing for no other reason than they convinced you they deserved it. But so many cultures and religions and forms of folklore like hinge upon a like chosen human with access to divinity which deep down, with the exception of Matilda, I think we know in most cases it's not really happening. But I think you want to believe that it's possible some people are genuinely called and chosen for certain things. And when people tell you who they are, believe them, which is a quote by Rachel Hollis, but actually Maya Angelou, a la Michael Scott, Wayne Gretzky. Anyway, it's um quite difficult to cover two documentaries in one episode, but I'm going to try. I love Killing Two Birds, and I love the Spice Girl song To Become One, so we'll give it a go. I'll kind of explain them both, but I think I'm going to spend more time on Love Has One, maybe toward the end, because I did more research on it and found it to be quite layered. It's been a minute since I've done a deep dive. It's been a minute since I've talked about cults, and it's been a minute since I've released an a beast of an episode. And by that, I just mean one that covers like way too much stuff and is like way longer than it needs to be. But like, we're just going to indulge. We love to go over the two hour mark here at the Be There in Five podcast. But you know, all the all the male hosted podcasts, so many of them, like Rogan, the biggest podcaster ever, his episodes are like three hours long. And it's a format that I don't know, I, I feel like not enough female podcasters take up an excess amount of space. And I want us to. But anyway, yeah, today's a classic BTI 5 deep dive where I was too ambitious, tried to cover way too much stuff. But so many of you guys have watched one or both of these, and I felt like I couldn't pick one. Uh, so just a heads, if you need the Cliff's Notes, I am not your gal. But if you're doing a two-hour hike up a cliff, I sure am. But yeah, welcome. Sit back, relax, and grab your nearest bottle of colloidal silver because these documentaries were gold. 
as much as I love to deep dive a so-called light worker who claims to emanate an incandescent glow, I'd rather stick to products that actually make my skin glow. And that's why this holiday season, you should give the gift of Osea. You know, the holidays sneak up on us. It's important to get ahead of your gift shopping. I love to introduce people to brands that I really genuinely like, that I buy with my own money, uh, because it's a really high-quality product with really high-quality ingredients that actually gives me the outcome it promises. Can you imagine? Osea is taking the guesswork out of gift-giving with their Super Glow Body Set. It's a limited-edition box set featuring three of Osea's best-selling body care products, a full-size Andaria Algae Body Oil, Andaria Cleansing Body Polish, and a travel-size Andaria Algae Body Butter. This is your trifecta for dolphin skin to exfoliate with the body polish is so good. The body oil I put on like out of the shower or bath when I'm still kind of damp and it holds in moisture all day without getting like the grease on your sheet or clothes. And I mean that. Uh, and it's one of the most moisturizing things I've ever used. And in the Chicago winter, like even my house, I now have hum humidity gauges because of the baby and holy dry air. I had no idea. No wonder I'm dry as the day is long uh, throughout these months. And uh, whether I'm using the Andaria Algae Body Oil or the body butter that I like to put self-tanner drops in, I'm hydrated and my skin is left silky soft and unbelievably glowing. And what I love about this set is it's packed in a box. It's beautiful. You can skip the gift wrapping. And right now you can save 30% on the set at OCMalibu.com. Plus, we'll share a discount code for an additional 10% off. Give the gift of glow this holiday season with clean vegan skincare from Osea. And right now, we have a special discount just for our listeners. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code BTIF at oseamalibu.com. Head to oseamalibu.com and use code BTIF for 10% off. The first is a three-part documentary called Love Has Won, The Cult of Mother God, which is streaming on HBO Max. And it was directed by Hannah Olson. And the style of this documentary is very different than any other cult doc I've seen. And the director chose to not use former members, to not use cult experts, which I think is really interesting because she didn't want any hand-holding for the viewer. I think she was going for a more empathetic approach and choosing to talk to members that are still in the thick of it rather than those who have the privilege of hindsight and, I mean, speaking of privilege, that's another thing that I try to keep in mind when I'm, like, lolling at these cults. Because I, while I thought this documentary left out some of the more cruel and culty things that made this group harmful, I did appreciate the empathetic approach and the sharing of people's backstories. They were people that were trying to cope with addiction, trauma, abuse, poverty. But even just like a general feeling of needing purpose and meaning. And one person talked about how it was hard to graduate in like the late aughts recession because it made her realize that material success was an illusion. And I was like, well, yeah, interesting. I think we're quick to dismiss things so far outside of the mainstream, forgetting that in many cases, the mainstream doesn't feel like an option for people. They've been ostracized from it. The system has failed them. Or, you know, they want to get off the ride because a lot of the things we're taught to chase leave you, you know, kind of trying to fill a void. The documentary has thousands of hours of Love Has Won YouTube videos, live streams, police body cam footage. It's a really compelling documentary that I think has a lot of interesting layers, especially considering there's a woman at the helm. And it's not your classic story of 
an egomaniac driven by money, power, greed, coercive control. It's a kind of sad tale of a person that possibly started with good intentions, but I think damaged a lot of lives and did a ton of fucked up things that we'll talk about. But ultimately, her own followers aided in her slow, painful death, yet claimed to love her more than anything in the world. This documentary is one of the best cold opens of a, of a cult doc I've ever seen, where the police body cam footage uh, is responding to uh, allegations made by Michael slash Miguel, one of the cult's members, that there was a corpse in the home. And the opening is the police going into this back bedroom that kind of looks like a shrine, uh, only to pan to something wrapped in a sleeping bag and Christmas lights that is, in fact, a corpse that is, I believe, 12 days old. They refer to it as a mummy, and I'm not totally sure if she met any practices of mummification, but allegedly she was missing her eyes and there was just like glitter makeup in the sockets. Uh, truly so disturbing. And we ultimately find out that while her devoted following thought that she was growing sicker and sicker and ailing due to carrying all of the pain and evil and suffering of humanity, which they exploited on YouTube and live streams to further engage their digital following because their they're not complying was what was making Mother God sick. Uh, what her autopsy actually showed is that she was not ailing due to bearing the pain of humanity. She was ailing because she only ingested colloidal silver and alcohol and died from organ failure, anorexia, and ingesting too much colloidal silver because by the end of her life, she was completely, literally blue. Even while she was alive, you might have heard of colloidal silver because some groups, this one included under the name of, I believe it was Gaia Naturals, uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic, was hawking colloidal silver as a cure to COVID in addition to countless conspiracy theories and misinformation campaigns because one of their core beliefs was in the cabal. They collected funds through GoFundMes, through selling their products like colloidal, colloidal silver or plasma therapy, as they charged $88.88 for spiritual surgeries, which she's performed over 100000 as they amassed income through exploiting her sufferings and sharing her quote-unquote teachings that are kind of a hodgepodge of New Age bullshit that are cobbled together by most cults in a way that leave you asking, but why? What is it? What do they believe? No one knows because it makes no sense. Because it's not about the content. It's about the control. It's about the belonging. It's apparently about Robin Williams playing the role of a lifetime from the skies as your very godfather. I think I speak on behalf of all of us when I say the love of God for the love of Mother God. Leave Robin Williams out of it. What did he ever do to you? I found that the press about this documentary following its premiere is very, like, focused on her formerly working at McDonald's. And I'm not totally sure why, because it just doesn't feel like the most relevant piece of information. I guess it was just like her last formal job. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe they're trying to explain her arc in an oversimplified, like, this to that rags to riches format. In which case, we do have a classic tale of you know, Mickey D's to Weekend at Bernie's. From I'm loving it to love his one, the Amy Carlson story. So 
Amy claimed she had been reincarnated 534 times, and her past lives included uh, Jesus Christ, Joan of Arc, Marilyn Monroe, Harriet Tubman, Amelia Earhart, uh, among others. She also claimed to have a group of galactics, including, as I mentioned, the late Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, Patrick Swayze, Steve Irwin, and weirdly Donald Trump. And they clarify that he's still alive in the present, yet still part of the galactics. And all apparently all of these people advised her and communicated with her. And the members, one of their core beliefs, even though it was hard to really pin down their core beliefs exactly, believed that um, Amy Carlson, Mother God, would eventually lead 144,000 of her followers into a new dimension. Carlson claimed that she lived in the mythical ancient land of Lemuria, and Donald Trump was her father. A special obscure technology was stolen, causing an explosion that sunk Atlantis. Mother God was able to save the technology, but wasn't able to fully ascend to the fifth dimension because humanity wasn't ready, so she continues returning to Earth in human form. Makes sense. The group's former website said Carlson was a spiritual surgeon who would work multidimensionally to operate on people's bodies and cure various physical, physical ailments. She said she had cured cancer, Lyme disease, addiction, and suicidal thoughts, as well as removed brain tumors and helped cases of autism. What's interesting about that list, I think the operative word here is cured. Because when you think about cancer, Lyme disease, addiction, you know, depression, mental health issues, autism, these are things that people learn how to manage, but that don't necessarily have like full on cures. Some cancers can be treated, but like someone who's really sick and the treatments aren't working anymore, the cancer's growing. Like, my God, I would I would do anything. I'd, I'd go to an RV in the woods with a dead body in the back if they told me it meant that they could save a person I love. You know, like I. This is why we can make fun of these people. But like when you're promising things like that, you're going to find people that are dealing with impossible things. So they're willing to believe in the impossible to make it better. And I just feel like a lot of cults have a person that even uh, to the Twin Flames dude started in like curing ailments. It just goes to show like what people are going to do if you know, they don't have access to health care if they can't afford medical bills when a place like Love Has Won is so distrusting of modern medicine and against doctors and hospitals, but they claim it's because they're part of the cabal or whatever the hell it is, and they're in the 5D, no, 3D. They don't trust 3D doctors, sorry. Distinction. 5D doctors. Thumbs up. I think a lot of what these uh, these places will claim to offer you uh and by way of like purpose and meaning and finding your truth and your path and if you're lost and it, it it's like kind of these words that are oftentimes symptoms or feelings a person has when they're like depressed or have actual mental health issues and it's almost like the, the these places become a form of therapy that doesn't obviously serve the individual it serves the organization it's like that metaphor that we've talked about before how you know using tactics from like psychotherapy as an unlicensed person is dangerous in the way that a knife looks different in the hands of a chef or a murderer like the tool can be the same but you can use it for good or evil i mean only in america is a family trying to reach their unwell daughter unable to get her mental health care because she joined a cult 
So they have to reach out, not to a real doctor, but to Dr. Phil, who will just exploit her story and get her absolutely no help. And he's one of many people that could have helped her, but chose not to. Anyway, I feel like when I start to talk about how these organizations uh, prey on and damage people dealing with mental health issues, I start to get ragey, not only because we have a mental health crisis in this country, and I'm fearful for what this continues to look like on the internet as, as people find the illusion of community and support and healing in the wrong places. And I actually cut like a half hour from this episode because it was getting way too long and it was kind of personal. If you want to review three cults today, I uh, kind of dove into a different cult that's still active and give some context as to why I think I even ever started talking about and or obsessing over cults that I, I don't think I've ever told you guys before because um, I know somebody that was in one and it ended uh, quite tragically. And it's a really sad story that I literally think about all the time. These documentaries are um, entertaining to watch, but these are very real people who have completely cut off their family, who, you know, have people that love them, who are in utter fear and despair, praying they get out from under this group's control because they don't have anybody looking out for their best interest. And uh, yeah, just maybe we'll provide some context for why I think I get so worked up when I talk about guru types. It's not like just for sport. And yeah, I like said it in passing last night, but then I was like, wait, I haven't looked up that cult in a while, like, are they still around? And then I saw, like, a semi-recent article about how this, like, douchebag guru guy, it was like a headline in a, a major publication about how he was fucking his female followers to freedom. And it's like this polyamorous, cigar-chomping dude who's so arrogant and terrible. And I just got so ragey and honestly had to stop recording after. And I was like, this doesn't even belong in the episode. So anyway, I'll put that up today um, on patreon.com slash be there in five. I uh, put more personal stuff on there or like bonus content like overflow because I literally can't have this episode be three hours and I'm trying to focus. But anyway, what was I talking about? Some of uh, Amy from Love Has One's background. Trump's her dad. She can cure cancer, autism, Lyme disease. I actually uh, find her roster of people she was uh, reincarnated as to be particularly interesting. Like Amelia Earhart, Harriet Tubman, and Marilyn Monroe. Because at first glance, I'm like, I think some of those people were alive at the same time. And I saw a comment that was like, um, Harriet Tubman and Amelia Earhart were alive at the same time. And apparently Marilyn Monroe and Amelia Earhart were alive at the same time. And that made me laugh because, yeah, go figure. Finally, gone as a woman, the universe makes her multitask. There was also some organizational design flaws, in my opinion, um, because when I was doing more research about them, I guess... I was like, why did they choose these this roster of celebrities? Like, it just kind of seemed random. And each celebrity in the group of Galactics had a special job. And I don't know why, but I find this funny. Uh, Patrick Swayze's job, for example, is that he was in charge of pets. Interesting choice. Given that Steve Irwin was a member of the Galactics. <laughs> they, they patron saint of pets. And what was his job? He didn't have one. I mean, it's just, yeah, it's just so, it's a real mismanagement of talent and resources that I, that I can't get behind. 
part of me never knows how to approach it when I'm like, well, if people are like, you know, people hallucinate, people hear voices. Uh, there's a lot of ways that your mind can play tricks on you when you're suffering from mental illness. And if that's the case, we have an unfortunate reality of people holding on to it as truth and enabling her to never get better, but kind of indulge to the point of her own demise. So I hope, you know, I'm sensitive to that. But at the same time, it's just this documentary is so crazy. You kind of have to laugh at some of it. And I just, yeah. So, well, I think I'm going to do Twin Flames first. We'll hop over to that in a second. Just wanted to set it up. While I'm empathetic to the plight of people, the system has failed. And therefore, people are, you know, disenchanted with institutions and looking for alternative things to believe in. I get all that, but also like you're selling colloidal silver as a cure for COVID. You're, you spew anti-Semitic and racist rhetoric. Like I was uncomfortable seeing clips of Jason like handing her alcohol. Part of me wonders if like, yeah, he was more of like a handler type. They were letting her drink, what, a, was it a liter or a half liter of colloidal silver a day? And she was turning blue. And even in the documentary, one of her like minions was saying, oh, well, if you administer it wrong, you'll turn blue. But then, like, why is it okay that she was turning blue toward the end? Did you want her to die? I don't know. It's like, I appreciated the approach, but at the same time, I was left with a lot of questions. I don't know. I wish I could find proof, but I just, I, I really feel like Father God, her partner Jason, and her, like, main administrative slash financial guy slash, according to uh, a former member on Reddit, former lover, Miguel slash Michael Silver, Part of me, like, wonders if they were in cahoots and Michael didn't really steal the money and instead distributed it to the members that Sully killed her because they all immediately started these spinoff businesses by leveraging Amy's audience. It's almost like they were the minions, but now they're like leaders of their own little cults. So I, I guess if your mother God, whoever you're married to, is appointed as father God and Jason was the third, but not her third husband. Just the third Father God, if that makes sense. A third installment isn't always our best work. That's relatable. Uh, he, I mean, he's the eclipse of Father God's, the Tokyo Drift, if you will. I I don't know. I actually think this documentary kind of went easy on Jason. I know he's had a tough background and she wanted to show examples of people the system has failed and why they, you know, pursue this sort of thing. But from reading on stuff online from former members... And watching clips, it seems that a lot of people attribute the de like her decline and when she got sicker and sicker and when the organization got more and more toxic, they align it with when she got together with Jason Father God. And he also said some really awful stuff online. I'll maybe try to find a clip. But when you do more research on him, it's very hard to believe that people called him Father God or even just trying to align him with a Jesus-like character is absurd. Jesus went about doing good, curing the sick, feeding the hungry, you know, picking up others who were suffering. And Jason, Father God, similarly picked up several criminal charges in Nevada, Wisconsin, and Florida. So that's cool. Uh, you know, Jesus stepped down from heaven to become a servant among men. He suffered rejection, humiliation, and excruciating death on a cross to save us. And Jason was charged with child neglect, criminal mischief, two DUIs, trespassing, and breaking and entering. So, potato, potato. Um, the one thing I did think was interesting about 
Jason, Father God, is that I actually do think if in a perfect world, my God, if not a woman, would have a similar bio to this because I saw this in an article. Father God, a former blockbuster worker and Life is One co-leader, Jason Gilbert Castillo, 44. You know, there are many traits my God would not have. But gotta say, when I heard Jason used to work at a blockbuster, I didn't hate it. You know how in job interviews, they're like, name a situation at work where there was conflict and you worked through it. A block a blockbuster worker has seen some shit. Like, I I think about being in a tween sleepover crew trying to achieve consensus in the new releases section on what we wanted to watch that night. And my God, the fights, the tension, the ripping VHS cartridges out of people's hands. Just kidding. They're only the covers. You couldn't get the cartridges. They knew better. I can't tell you how many times I was nearly brought to tears in a blockbuster or a video time or a Hollywood video, probably weeping in the corner by the uh, creepy and, I'd imagine, sticky adult video room. I I would always... um. Like, there was just an era of sleepovers when people were obsessed with scary movies. And we would have already watched so much Scream, and I was, like, so traumatized seeing Drew Barrymore hung from that tree. And I just, like, when I knew we were going in that direction, I would start to panic because I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be stuck on this bitch's hardwood floor with just a sleeping bag, overthinking all of the creaks in the house, unable to sleep, and too scared to go to the kitchen because I don't want one of their parents to wake up. Because bumping into a parent in their house and having to make small talk, especially at a weird hour when I'm in my jammies, is a thing of nightmares to me. And yeah, I would just start to spiral because I, I would, I, if I saw a scary movie, I wouldn't sleep. I wasn't really sleeping anyway, but really not then. And then when we're in the blockbuster and the tally comes in in favor of the faculty, we were in a Josh Hartnett moment, sure. But I always tried to make it clear that my interest in alien-related movies begins and ends with Mars Attacks. I think I stand by that because I don't even I didn't even really like uh, Men in Black. Um, edited to add Stepsister from Planet Weird, a fantastic Disney Channel original movie that I highly recommend watching after eating an edible. The alien that is pretending to be a human is um, afraid of the wind, despite having lived her previous alien life as a bubble. You guessed it. Who floats in the wind? It's a bottle. I, I, I can't make this stuff up. So good. I just, I feel like I was seeing people be kind of almost charmed by some of these characters based on how they were presented. But like, I don't know, just you don't think I'm being uh, too harsh. Here are just a couple clips from their live streams. Like, warning, these are incredibly offensive and do not reflect the views of the Be There in Five podcast. And I hesitate to play them, but I think it's important to understand people involved with this organization spread a lot of harmful and hateful rhetoric that was not about um, love and light. The beep you'll hear is the N-word beeped out, by the way. This is Jason talking, Father God, in the first one. And then there's a short clip of um, Hope and Aurora, two of the main followers featured in the documentary, saying horrendously anti-Semitic things. You know how they give the shit to the fucking You hear that word? It's a cockroach. It's the fucking lowest form that hates God. That's what a is. It's nothing to do with color. They switch that around on you too. Trigger, 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 trigger. They've turned you into a fucking slave. It's the same thing with the Jews. It's like Hitler knew the truth. Hitler was trying to stop that. A lot of Jews became bankers. That was their 
thing that they want, the energy behind it was that they wanted everyone else to do the work and they would take the money. Um, and so part of the idea behind the concentration camps was just to teach them to work. They have no words. That was just like a couple clips to just illustrate that this isn't harmless or just something that affected the one woman who died. Um, this is something that has like a huge digital footprint that could reach a lot of people. And there's so many ways these types of people can be platformed and find or breed like-minded people that spew off this sort of thing. And yeah, I think it's scary. And I think it's even scarier that both of the cults we're talking about today are like mostly still in practice. Love is one now they spun off into a bunch of different cults, the remaining members that many still seem to be believers. And uh, yeah, Twin Twin Flames is still like up and running. Oh, yeah. I didn't introduce that. How far in are we? Uh, I was just going to introduce the two and then go more in depth. But I guess we'll just hop back and forth. I'm assuming you watched both of these. And later in the Love Has Won part, I want to, instead of like recap it, I want to fill in some of the blanks just from what I've researched. Twin Flames universe, on the other hand, is a very dark cult that the leaders claim is not a cult, which LOL, to convince their members they weren't cult leaders. They had them watch Nexium's The Vow on HBO, to which many members said, oh, this is how I realized we are, in fact, a cult. So not the brightest bulb or not the brightest flame, I suppose. Desperately Seeking Soulmate, Escaping Twin Flames Universe, was on Amazon Prime, and Netflix, like a month later, released Escaping Twin Flames, which is another three-part docuseries that digs deeper. The Prime one is based on the reporting of Alice Hines, and she wrote the Vanity Fair expose inside the always-online, all-consuming world of Twin Flames Universe, and the Netflix doc is based on the work of investigative journalist Sarah Berman. The leaders of the Twin Flame universe are a married couple named Jeff and Shalia. And the the guy Jeff, Guru Jeff, he basically used the concept of finding your soulmate or Twin Flame to fund a multi-million dollar lifestyle built from the profits of his not-for-profit. As Taylor Swift once said, did the Twin Flame brewers paint you blue and yeah not quite as blue as amy carlson but i felt pretty damn blue after this because it was a really really sad example of you know kind of the mad lib of of cults or self-help where they just pick a really vulnerable circumstance that is so completely human in this case it was wanting your soulmate wanting a partner wanting to be loved it was kind of started as a matchmaking service but ultimately was just you know an income generating scheme and the members throughout the documentaries share the countless cult-like tactics and kind of MLMs, you know, style persuasion to control people. And Escaping Twin Flames, what is the, which is the one I watched first, it was genuinely shocking and disturbing. And it, it wasn't about matchmaking. It wasn't about relationship advice. It was about controlling every aspect of their lives with everything from their romantic partners to their gender identities. I mean, like, this is a classic tale. Of, of a gal who has some casual new agey interests and then a man who learns things from her and instead of just personally enjoying the concept that his partner shared with him, the egomaniac turns it into this sinister empire and enterprise uh, fueled by 
money and power and wanting control over people. And to me, it seemed like the person he had control over the most was his wife, Shalia. And while the Jeff and Shalia bond was allegedly the draw of the group, the glue holding it together, that they were the OG twin flames, I really did struggle to understand the pull of Jeff and Shalia. Their relationship does not come across as idyllic. It seems very forced and not believable. They allegedly were supposed to be this couple that epitomized twin flames. But to me, it was the documentary was just video after video after video of Shalia like saying nothing. She was silent. And if she talked, she was immediately shut down or talked over by Jeff when she tried to speak up. And I guess one of the most confusing parts for me I mean, literally everything. I, there, there's so much crazy stuff about this doc. The just like douchebaggery and the un, like, I just don't find Jeff and Shalia charismatic, believable. I think they're corny and transparent. And it was a documentary where like, I it took me a minute to get into because personally, I find them so not believable. But I, I've really tried to think about if I just came across one of their videos, if I would find it appealing and like, no, they didn't rev my engine, so to speak. As much as the douche Lord Jeff had me firing on all cylinders of rage that we exist in a world where men like him are able to find enough reinforcement in their abusive behavior that people by default will perceive it as authoritative. I think that Jeff is so insufferable and terrible and all the things. And I'm like, what the hell about him is is luring people in? But it, it yeah, it just brings up a lot of questions of like... Are really any cult leaders that like endearing or appealing? I mean, look at Keith Raniere. I, I there's something about them and their delusional confidence and delivery and certainty that vulnerable people just are drawn to. You, you could see them as like a brilliant master manipulator, or I think some people are so dense, it's almost like a symptom of incompetence is the inability to recognize your own limitations. So I just think about this a lot in terms of what we actually do and who we actually are versus how we present and how that shows up in positions of power and influence. I do think that most cult leaders being male has something to do with how people might be more conditioned to like believe men to assume their authority by default. And I think it's really interesting whose confidence we find commanding and convincing and not delusional or undeserved. And yeah, watching videos of him makes me ragey because thinking about how men can move through the world and believe they deserve respect. And so often women are moving through the world like they have to earn respect. And I don't mean to overgeneralize, but I guess we are if we're doing divine masculine and feminine. But I, I think it makes me mad that he did all those terrible things. But it almost makes me madder that like a man can plot and know that like he could get away with doing terrible things. He can have like a business plan that's far from airtight that he has to pivot 12 million times and absolutely run people's lives into ruin and be condescending and mocking and rude and abusive and all the things and still have a following and still make money and still get away with it. But the dichotomy of these two cults are interesting when you consider that they both believed in the divine feminine and the divine masculine. And Love Has One talked about the concept of twin flames, too. And I believe you could only, um, your twin flame had to be in the organization also and had to be chosen by the leader. Anyway, the there being a 
watching a male cult leader and a female on back to back was kind of interesting because it would almost debunk what I was saying, because obviously the female cult leader was very effective, too. But there's something about her her arc and her tragedy in that, yeah, they these cults may be started in a similar way, preaching that there's some chosen person who knows how you should run your life better than you do, who wanted a following, who used abstract concepts to lure people in and cult-like tactics to make them stay. But when you think about their fate, these stories play out incredibly differently. At the end of Twin Flames, the male cult leader was what? Richer, more powerful, is still thriving in his business and calling himself Jesus and apparently actively recruiting new members despite all of these allegations. And the other documentary ended with a woman's assisted decline who wasn't necessarily idolized for her power, but almost fetishized and worshipped and exploited for her suffering and her pain. The love her following had for her was shown in the form of celebrating her martyrdom and not concern for her self-destruction. And I think there's something there. A lot of the things we're talking about today are fairly uncommon, but not in a good way. So I like to take my talents to uncommon goods to find good stuff that's uncommon. Because Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade in the U.S. You're supporting small artists, independent businesses when you shop there, and their products are often made in small batches. So hence why we've been doing ads before the holiday season, so you can shop now before they sell out. Things that sell out And my favorite products do sell out, like the pistachio pedestal that gives you a place for your nuts that literally dads across America have raved about. And the popcorn bowl I told you about that comes with a kernel sifter, which I think is really important to protect your chompers, but also because too many of you are still using your popcorn bowl as a puke bowl, and I think we deserve better. Uncommon experiences are also so fun. They're unexpected opportunities to have fun and connect in new ways. From tarot card reading, don't get in a cold after though, romantic map map making, cooking, and mixology classes, and more. I love to buy the kids in my life this um, squishy gummy bear bedside lamp that is adorable that I kind of want for campy office decor. They've always had cool wedding gifts and stuff too that are highly personalized that work great for Christmas gifts. They have a million cheese boards you can put like recipes on or initials. They have a lot of stuff like for your favorite sports team, your favorite feminist icon. Um, They split all the gifts by like for her, for him, for kids, for teens which is helpful because I honestly don't know what to get people most of the time. I don't know if you watch the uh, Kelsey documentary on Prime, but they spent like a solid segment talking about this thing on the wall that was like the sound bars from a song that was Jason's favorite. And I could tell even that's an uncommon goods number. But yeah, they're just really cool, unique, often customizable gifts that are just the type of thing that you feel like Christmas morning because when you saw it, you were like, that's so my mom, that's so my sister. And I did just ship a bunch of stuff to my parents' house, and I'll report back. I'm sure one Kelly Kennedy won't be surprised. Many of hers involve uh, her favorite baseball team. (laughs) Anyway, you guys, to get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com slash be there in five. That's uncommongoods.com slash be there in five for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. The documentary shows that Shalia is who first introduced Jeff to a bunch of new age practices like tarot card reading and twin flames. 
which of all concepts is the one he held on to. Like I mentioned earlier, these cults seem like a Mad Libs of like, let's pick the thing that people want the most that's hardest to get. And it's hard to find like love, a soulmate, a partner. But where he went wrong is that cults need to promise something that cannot be proven in this life uh, or that cannot be adequately quantified, like your salvation, for example, like your ascension or whatever the hell happens to your spirit after you die, like the vague concept of success, even like culty type stuff or self-help stuff that promises, you know, what a lot of people want, which is money. And that is quantifiable and to be found in this life. It's always underscored by like a prosperity gospel. The more you spend, the more you'll make, the more involved you are, the closer you'll get to this idea of financial freedom. So I just think what kind of happened with TFU is you promise people these soulmates, but like in like, yeah, you can dupe people to a degree, but when the relationships don't work, when they aren't actually compatible, when they don't work out and you don't have like very many testimonials or a critical mass of your formula working, it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to back up your guarantees. And that's what I think is fascinating about this, because his guarantee was utterly baseless. So in the doc, when they were explaining that twin flames must be pursued independent of any earthly barriers, meaning it doesn't matter if they broke up with you, it doesn't matter if they're with someone else, it doesn't matter if they're married to somebody else, it doesn't matter if they're having a kid with somebody else, it doesn't matter if they're in jail, on parole, live in a different country, are 15 years older than you, it doesn't even matter if they have a restraining order against you, you pursue them at all costs. So this encouraged people to stalk, to obsess, to text them around the clock, to email, to call, to leave voicemails, to show up where they were to the point of getting arrested and put in jail for a year, all to pursue their twin flame because this dude was telling them that their instinct was right and the person they were obsessing over who already expressly told them they weren't interested basically needed to be incessantly contacted until they gave in. This person is guaranteeing you find your soulmate and you are heartbroken, unlucky in love, you know, living out my former life story of unrequited love, a la Iris in the Holiday. Like, I want to be clear, I'm, I'm genuinely empathetic to how vulnerable of a position it is to be in when you really are looking for a partner and, you know, to get married or whatever is, is something you really want for your life. But it's, it, it's so hard to meet people. It's so hard to find a healthy relationship. It's so hard to find a compatible person. We live in an increasingly isolated world. And I think especially when a person is broken up with or feeling rejected, it creates this deficit where you almost put the other person on a, a pedestal and obsess over them. And also there's something interesting about Twin Flames where it, he does the opposite thing a lot of cult leaders do, because in many cases they're having to use like all these mind control techniques and tactics because you're having to go so far against your instincts. But Twin Flames, per the um, encouragement of people in unrequited circumstances to lean into their obsession and pursue them at all costs and that, no, you're right, they are your twin flame. It's kind of like his shtick is hooking people by encouraging them to give into impulses. But I kind of understand why people might have tried it because it go it's it's the antithesis of what, at least in my era, we were taught about how to get a guy. This is full on 
pay for play how to lose a guy in 10 days, doing literally all the wrong things. Whereas I was raised in a why men love bitches America. Well, you know, like the pickup artist, everything was like, be withholding. This is where, again, bad business, like encouragement of people to lean into their obsession and pursue them at all costs. He would need an example of that working for somebody. And that like simply would not work. I think what happened is they realized that their control over people, their ability to generate income and their ability to retain people in the groups, their format probably wasn't yielding much success. And, you know, what does one do when they build a business with no business experience and then realize their business is failing? Say it with me, coaching. Start a coaching business, of course, hawking their expertise and success as reasons why you should pay them to coach you, even though the reason they had to resort to coaching you is because they have no expertise nor success and needed another revenue stream. I know I'm a broken record. People get so mad at me. Okay, you always talk about the same stuff, the Venn diagram. I know, but I really only have like five episodes about this. And I just need the people, these people to stop making money. If someone tells you how many figures they earn in a year and talks about their explosive business growth and now does specifically business coaching, please, for the love, keep in mind, if they were so good at business, they'd run businesses, not coach about them, and not only run coaching businesses. There are some coaches that are totally legit, especially those that teach you trades. A lot of people want to pivot away from actually being a practitioner of the thing and teach the thing. Uh, and I respect that. But there just are a lot of bogus coaches out there. I think they did ultimately basically just get people to be twin flame coaches. That's, the, that's why these are always res vaguely resemble MLMs. These were marketed under the group Twin Flames Universe. And the idea of finding a twin flame rapidly evolved into a whole lifestyle dictated by his teachings and trainings. And they were very expensive. The Vice documentary um, or the Vice uh, expose said that the courses and workshops ranged from $699 to $4,000 and, of course, came with a lot of pressure to upgrade or level up to the next course, like I think up to $8,000. And as with all cults, they have like a core tactic that's vaguely rooted in psychology. But in this case, it is being used to manipulate, brainwash and reframe people's thinking in a way that aligns with the organization or the cult leader's goals and more specifically their bottom line. And for Twin Flames, it was called the mirror exercise. So members are asked to write down a statement about what's bothering them, and then they invert the pronouns, thus blaming themselves, to heal the issue. They also have the MAP, the mind alignment process, is uh, in, the, in the doc, they, they called it the mirror exercise on steroids. Former member L says, in this meditative state, things are suggestible. She suggested there was sexual trauma that happened when I was a kid. To my best belief, I don't think I've ever actually had anything like that in my childhood. It was like a memory that was planted inside of me. The MAP process started the whole process of not really wanting to be around my family and feeling like they were out to hurt me. The doctor in the docuseries, who is an expert on cults and coercion and a professor of sociology at California State, said, many groups do this kind of introspective exercise, which they say is there to help you, but it's actually there to tear apart the self. It's also a way to separate them from their families, which is one of the goals of most cultic organizations, is they want to isolate you with just their little world. And it's interesting to see Jeff kind of pivot as he's 
maybe potentially losing control or power. And it, it, it eventually he begins to identify as the second coming of Jesus, which I just don't know how that applies to the twin flame universe, which is supposed to be like a categorical thing in terms of dating and finding your soulmate. Um, but yeah, it takes like this vaguely religious turn that I can't decide if it's because he had the aesthetic or because he needed to have an online footprint that made him look religious because once they got to a certain point, they wanted to file it under the like a nonprofit umbrella, starting the Church of Union. And, you know, as one does when running a nonprofit business uh, underneath it, you run multiple for profit businesses. They could also purchase recipes and cooking classes through a company called Divine Dish, which is which was such a weird part of episode two that I probably should have paid closer attention to. It basically it was a hundred dollars a month, and it was all carbs and heavy meat. But you had to buy the ingredients. And I guess a it's interesting that food control ends up being a part of like every cult. But I had not heard of an example before where the goal seems to be gaining weight. I feel like typically the goal is to deprive people of food, of nourishment, and it's usually more about making people weak, malnourished, and frail. Kelly and I were talking about this. We couldn't like quite figure out what was happening here. And listen, I, I, I know I've been through enough with uh, my journey with carbs over the years. The Atkins and South Beach of it all, and then the pre-wedding keto of it all. And I, we can't get into diet culture here. Um, carbs are like lettuce eat bread. You know, I just in phases of my life where I've eaten less healthy the way you feel when you're on a, like a diet of just carbs is pretty shitty. You need a balanced diet for your health, not for your weight or how you look, but just like to feel good. And I assume he wanted people to feel uh, low energy. His shtick is hooking people by encouraging them to give into impulses that are overindulgent to the point of being unhealthy. Would I love to be on like a carb-only diet? Like, yeah, but to have a nutritious balance and have energy and to take care of myself, like I can't do that all the time. But if somebody told me like that was the key to success, to finding my soulmate, whatever, like I'd be like, oh shit, hell yeah. Hit, like hit subscribe, 100 bucks a month to just eat carbs. Okay, so I was just like looking a bit more into this because I was like, I don't think I understand what this was for. The point is to make you feel heavier so you can stay present in your body. One former member of TFU talking about the meal plan said after being on the diet for about seven months, she had gained 70 pounds. Many of the other members had gained significant amounts of weight and developed health problems like diabetes. So yeah, it's like I, don't, like, I don't care to tell you what to eat, but it's just they marketed it as balanced eating and it wasn't. Oh, yeah, the website's still active. Yeah, food for God consciousness. Divine Dish's mission is to support your spiritual life through food to help you deepen your relationship with food in your body. You won't ever have to worry about not eating enough, binge eating, or malnourishment. You get to join a weekly discussion group to talk about how good the meals are and have access to a Facebook forum. Riveting. Where you can share and post pictures of your meals. Oh, I gotta get in that group. Boots on the ground. I wish Facebook wasn't didn't have to be tied to your actual identity because the way I would creep in so many weird Facebook groups... Like somebody told me to get like coupon codes for these bamboo like baby pajamas I like to join a group about it. And while I did get the, you know, early access code, I also feel deeply uncomfortable with the things people share. And the things are like beanie babies. I don't know why you need so many bamboo pajamas. People need every style, every color, but then your kid grows. So I don't, anyway, I can't even get into it. 
I haven't seen this many people rabid for, you know, loud patterns since I went to the Vera Bradley outlet. So like I mentioned earlier, the majority of the Twin Flames University TFU members were straight cisgender women. And after a while, not many of them had found a match. They had to tighten the organization to you only being able to match with your Twin Flame inside the organization. Farther it got in, they realized they were having trouble making money because of the role of outsiders' involvement because a cult cannot thrive if people really have outside intimate contact with others who would, you know, check them on their delusion. And since they are homophobic weirdos masquerading as LGBTQ plus friendly, that's where we get to them uh, encouraging their members to explore their sexuality and or transition genders. So in December 2019, Jeff and Shalia channeled 20 new twin flame pairings within the group itself. On the outside, they seemed supportive of the LGBTQ plus community and bringing in members that were trans or identified as gay or bisexual or whatever. But since the group believed that harmonious union, which is what you need with your twin flame, um, to reach it, there has to be a divine masculine and a divine feminine. And the majority of people paired in this December 2019 channeling of 20 new twin flame pairings only inside the organization uh, were two women. And half of them were told that they were now actually divine masculines. Convenient. And Jeff and Shalia... They started courses on bisexuality. One notable quote I wrote down, Katrina, you're totally sexually satisfied by Anne's spirit penis. Talked about the vagina being an illusion. I mean, the whole, it was just like, this is where shit got so crazy. I was like, what is happening? I, I just, yeah, I want to be careful in how I talk through this because I don't want to invalidate. Like the confusing thing is the optics of seeming supportive of trans individuals. Um, but it actually isn't that. And I appreciated them uh, bringing in the professor, Dr. Cassius Adair, who explained why this is so harmful to the community. Because Jeff and Shalia were started pressuring people to change their names, pronouns, and gender presentations. And even though on the outside, the, the things they were posting were like, we're not pushing anybody to transition. Whatever it looks like for you is fine. Um, but Victoria on the show was saying behind closed doors, the messaging was totally different. It had become a form of conversion therapy. And of the former members in the docuseries, one had begun to transition, then reversed course when she left the group, and another was pressured to transition, left the group because of it. And then a former member who left in 2021 said that before she left, two people had had top surgery. And Dr. Cassius Adair said it's not impossible that some of those people who start out in the group as straight cisgender women realize that they happen to be trans. But I don't hear in the testimony of the people in Twin Flames universe something like, I want to get closer to who I am. What I'm hearing them say is, I want to get closer to who I'm supposed to be. That raises a red flag for me, he continues. That doesn't feel right to me. We don't want there to be a supposed to be about gender. We want gender to be something that you are allowed to discern on your own. I hope that people who are watching the horror, or who are watching with horror what Jeff and Shalia are doing come to realize that you have a lot in common with the trans community. Because we as trans people want everyone to have ownership of their own body and be able to present ourselves and find love as who we are. And that's what Jeff and Shalia think is a threat to their business model. I was like, damn, you're so right. It's not about finding your truth, being yourself, owning your body, your identity, and preaching inclusion and you know, radical acceptance. I think one of the heartbreaking parts of this documentary was in the interviews with the mothers. There was Louise, who was a mother of a current member, 
Stephanie, um, and who met on Reddit, another mother, and her and Maxine and uh, Debbie have their own community, which I just am glad they have support. Um, they're trying to collect evidence against Jeff and prove it's a cult. I feel like it shouldn't be hard, but um, Isaiah and Ray transitioned gender after joining. Maxine says, out of the blue, my child said, I want you to start calling me by he and him. I asked how long he had felt like this, and he responded immediately when I became a twin flame. And I think that kind of puts a parent in a weird position because you don't want to question somebody who's coming to you with that uh, and make it seem like you are invalidating their truth or not being accepting of who they are. But I think the suspicion of this is who you're being told you're supposed to be, not who you are, um, is really heartbreaking for a parent to watch. Anyway, crazy doc, diabolical humans feel really bad for those who were affected by it. And it was heartbreaking to hear from the members and mothers. And I was like, oh, my God, thinking of the like how coercive Keely was and watching her meet with a former member. It was just, yeah, it was it was well done. And I thought a lot of the um, touchier conversations were handled with a level of sensitivity and brought in with the right experts. And I, I enjoyed watching the documentary, though, admittedly, both of them took me a minute to get into because I don't know, I feel like kind of like how people are like stop talking about cults because the content's kind of redundant that's the thing is the cult cults are so redundant they're all very similar and sometimes even i get bored hearing about them but yeah the forced gender identity was yeah something i did not see coming and i'm like how have i never heard of this but i come to find out you guys so many of you were like did you not listen to the podcast i was like no i didn't know that there was a podcast about this i guess from last year that you can listen to i need to find the name um and it's like okay and I think sometimes it's hard to quantify the harm done and the lives destroyed and people aren't always empathetic to people that fall for these things and whatever. But like in 2019, a member of the group died by suicide. And the way Jeff and Shalia framed it was that she chose to stop doing the work. And this was a choice she made. Like, unbelievable. And this was after the member asked for mental health help on Facebook. This is what a lot of cults do. This type of negligence and mis- I, this is like just wish there was something like criminal that you could, you know, convict people with. It should be a crime. Okay, like Josh had um, bipolar schizophrenia and he was told the way he could work through that was to have a health. He was told the way to work through it was just to have a healthy, consistent, supportive relationship. How? Through the, you know, twin flames methodology. And Chrissy uh, was told in her map session that she needed to ground them ground her relationship in more mirror exercises if she wanted to stop josh's you know schizophrenic episodes it's like the fuck it and and just it's just like what I, i mean there's so much more where that came from it's just so incredibly sad and dangerous and if like this should be a crime too the way they talked about their prospective daughter i just i literally started to get nauseous okay i want to change gears shift gears I don't drive stick, but I, I that was like the hottest thing a gal could do in high school is be like, yeah, I know how to, I know how to drive stick. I, why was like, is that like a not like other girls thing? I don't know. Never had any desire. I mean, being able to drive stick to me is like being multilingual. I'm just so profoundly impressed by your brain that you can do and process so many things at once. And yeah, I salute you. Um. Okay, we're going back to Love Has Won, the, the documentary on HBO Max. 
about Amy Carlson, a.k.a. Mother God, and her turning blue from drinking too much colloidal silver uh, and ultimately dying by the hands of her own following that kind of prioritized the idea of her being God over her being a person. Um, and I, I'm not trying to make this episode confusing. Uh, however, I wanted to like talk about the two and just kind of like set them up. But I didn't want to like deep dive both of them because like I just kind of recapped Twin Flames. There wasn't like much more investigating to do. But I f- there, were, there, was, there were questions I had about Love Has Won that I wanted to dive into further. So if, yeah. So this might be impossible, like me driving stick shift to, you know, have hopped back and forth. But um, I wanted to talk about how does this woman, Amy, go from being a... <laughs> Anytime I say, how does this... <laughs> How does this woman, Amy, go from McDonald's to a mummy, wrapped in a sleeping bag, and wrapped in a sleeping bag, in the back of a trailer with Christmas lights and mini shrine with candles, turned blue, and then she turned into a scandal. Wow. I would go see that musical. No, I wouldn't. Sorry, I get so bored talking to myself. That's why I do stuff like this. I wouldn't even join my own cult, trust me. Too much gratuitous wordplay. Oh, where was I? Are you still here? Am I still here? Reading a 193-page PDF cult document for this next segment really got me down this week. So when I say I am so excited to read for pleasure once again, I cannot express how excited I am to dive into my December pick from Book of the Month. Book of the Month is such a joy, you guys. If you're a voracious reader who wants to find new and emerging authors, I feel like everything is paralysis of choice anymore with like all the streaming options, all the book options, everything. And I just love having a little curation and the experts at Book of the Month pick five to seven titles each month, often by new and emerging authors. Some are repeat authors that are beloved by their audience. And since they've already predetermined what are some of the best new titles, you already know they're good, so you can't go wrong in what you pick. But I don't want to be told exactly what to read, so I can pick from the five to seven in terms of what interests me and know that I have a great next book in the queue and I'm supporting authors that I may not have heard of otherwise. My December book pick is A Winter in New York. The cover is cotton candy for the eyes. It is joyful. It, it's a delicious rom-com that has all the right ingredients, secret family recipes, holiday vibes, and a big pinch of love. That's by a three-peat author named Josie Silver. There's a debut author named Vanessa Chan, who wrote The Storm We Made, part family drama, part war epic. This harrowing, emotionally riveting debut depicts the havoc wreaked in World War II. And I think many of us could use a little bit more of an outsider's perspective on World War II since most of us learned about it from Molly McIntyre. They have so many good books this month. And I also love to peruse their most loved section because I realize like all my favorite shows are actually books that I probably should have read first. And when you go to the app, which is great, by the way, because members rate, review, and participate in reading challenges, you can pick one of the new books as your book of the month, and you can add backlist books to your box at a discount, which when I peruse, I always realize I'm behind on some of my backlist titles, or maybe I want to just revisit The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo for sport, for example. They also recently launched audiobooks, which is really cool, curated audiobooks, where members can choose, download, and listen right in the app. And I just appreciate that they have two formats because sometimes I want to read, sometimes I want to listen. And I just appreciate their mission of helping readers discover new books they love and to promote the work of authors. If you want to give it a try or give it as a gift to try, I think this is a fun gift for your, the reader in your life. 
Get your first book for only $5 with code be there in 5 at bookofthemonth.com. Get your first book for $5 with code be there in 5 at bookofthemonth.com. For a little bit more context, around 2006, Amy started hearing voices that she was Mother God and how she was to save her children from the apocalypse. Instead of seeking medical help for these voices, she prepared to go on a mission to prepare for the planet's ascension. Ironically, she would abandon her actual kids and husband number three before settling off, setting off to become Mother God. Like to treat her as this like arbiter of love and light and warmth and maternal energy is fucking crazy when she abandoned her children. And her, her daughter started a TikTok talking about her. I need to go follow her. And I just feel, I just really feel for these kids. Uh, I mean, the trauma associated with that abandonment period, but then having to see like internet videos of your mom who chose that, you know, she didn't want to be your mom because she has to be everyone else in the world ever's mom and romanticizes and kind of profits off this edit that her choice was a sacrifice and not a cruel form of neglect. I appreciated them for even being in the documentary, my God. Also, if your mom is God, does that make you Jesus? I don't know. I don't know how that works. Carlson found a spiritual community on the message board lightworkers.org, and that's where she met Amarith White Eagle, who became the first of many father gods to her divine feminine. Once she got with White Eagle, Amarith, I was reading an article in Time where they said Car- Carlson didn't want just a soulmate or equal. She wanted a platform. She wanted followers. She came to believe, as White Eagle puts it, she was more God than other people were God. The couple started a website called the Galactic Free Press where they wrote and vlogged about their beliefs. Mother God became a rabbit hole you could fall down after passing through conspiracy theories about 9 11. UFOs, the global banking system. By the early 2010s, White Eagle was sidelined in favor of Father God's more amenable to her delusions of grandeur. And a few years later, she assembled a bigger living community made up of largely attractive young adults afflicted with spiritual hunger. So if you're not convinced, this is where it's culty. Members are only allowed to sleep two to four hours per night. Amy believes food and sleep are obstacles to her ascension, Brown said. He lost 25 pounds in six weeks from the rationing of food. The members' weight loss is visible to anyone who watches their videos over time. Members are broken down until they have no sense of worth or self-identity left, right? Saying members were extremely cruel to each other. I've never seen someone scream as loudly as Amy Carlson does, Mother God. Members will tear each other apart for being in ego and lower frequencies. They even get daily report cards for how much time they spent in lower energies. Members are at times required to confess in front of the video live streams. They have to publicly list things they did to dishonor Mother God. They also use the term twin flame. They could not partner unless it was their twin flame. They were signed by Amy and subject to change. And they ask you to sign non-disclosure agreements and even sign away your own personality and intellectual property that you produce. And everyone changed their names, too. And this is from a former member. They own you, your life, and they require that you give up everything to join them. Not to mention, wait on this woman, Mother God, who's callous and narcissistic, abusive personality comes out when she goes on her drinking and drug binges. Meanwhile, they ban drugs and alcohol from all other members of the group. Oh, is that true? Was she the only one drinking? And Jeremy Brown, a former member who lived at the Love is One house, said that one of the reasons they believe Amy is God is because she can drink so much alcohol. Livestream regular Ashley Peluso even bragged in a blog post about how if anyone drank like mother, they'd be dead. Brown said Carlson once drank 24 tequila shots in a row. He also saw her chug a full bottle of very concentrated THC. I got coffee and whiskey, so fuck off, Carlson says in a video. This is a religion, like, can you imagine? Now a reading from Ephesians 2.16. 
And then God said, I got coffee and whiskey, so fuck off. Okay, I found this uh, 193-page PDF that's their crystal school guide. And it's like basically a giant parenting handbook and like has all of their like practices and teachings and all this stuff in one place. It's a fascinating document that says a bunch of nothing, a bunch of genuinely harmful and concerning things. And um, is maybe most surprisingly like they had like an infrastructure and like lesson plans and a, a curriculum. And like, I don't know if all this stuff is repurposed from elsewhere, but I could it never really seemed like there was much substance behind what they were doing. And I was like, how are they making money? Is there a business behind this? Do people have something to gain for profit? Like I, that stuff wasn't clear to me. Crystal School Guide for Children of the New Earth by Love His One and Joy Reigns. This Crystal School was what they were constantly fundraising for. Um, they made money, like I said earlier, with the $88.88 surgeries. She did over 100,000 of them, but they collected money a myriad of other ways. They even at one point fun, did a fundraiser um, for a tilt-a-whirl at their headquarters, which I kind of respect. But the Crystal School is something they talked about a lot, and that was like Mother of God's life's work. But to my knowledge, they never like launched it. Oh, literally right before her death, Michael slash Miguel, who turned them in, put the money in the bag and he stole the keys because that's like what I that's like kind of all they really said is he took the money and ran and no one followed up with him. He filed for the Articles of Incorporation for the nonprofit, the Crystal Schools, five days before he reported the body of Amy to the police, a.k.a. I think was already dead and he knew it but pretended he didn't because he was still in the inner circle. So I don't know. Like, did he do that in hopes that it would, you know, be a part of her legacy because Amy was really passionate about it? Did he do it because he was about to steal the money and wanted it to uh, appear to be fundraised in the name of something legitimate? I don't know. I'm very confused by the Crystal School. But this was like one of their big uh, means of revenue generation and what made me realize that there's someone or something about this cult that was actually more organized than I thought, at least organized enough to write 193 pages of copy. What I thought was interesting is that in this Crystal School Guide, it's like explaining stuff to kids. And this is them trying to explain to kids why she left her kids. Um. Mother of all creation did not contract to have children in this incarnation as her contract was to be on mission for all of humanity, all of her children. However, at 18 years old, one of her archangel souls entered, Cole, who was conceived at Hotel California, one of mom's favorite songs. Mom broke every mold of dysfunction. At 21, she was taking care of Cole, running five restaurants, caring for her dying husband. Mom set the example of what it means to be an absolute warrior, one that makes no excuses. Mom's second blessing came with the entry of another archangel soul, Aiden. Aiden's was mom. Aiden was mom's first responder. Aiden was Elvis Presley in his last life. His favorite song, Dream the Impossible Dream. He would request mom pl to play this song. And at one point said, Mommy, Mommy, you'll do it. The Impossible Dream. Aiden was mom's guide and gave her confirmations of who she was. While watching Spider-Man, he pointed to mom shouting, Mommy, Spider-Woman. This sent mom on a journey to discover a prophecy, an ancient telling of the return of great spirit, mom. What? Mom was awoken by the angels in the night when Aiden was two. The angels told mom she had to pack to go on mission. 
they told her that her children couldn't go with her. Mom argued for hours, I will not leave my children. The angels told her, you can either save three children or eight billion. Mom surrendered when Aiden gave her the confirmation, mommy go now. Isn't that kind of fucked up? To justify it by being like, well, Aiden was her guide and Aiden at two years old told her to go. Really, it's Aiden's fault when you think about it. Really, it's Spider-Man's fault. When she was processing grief in the shower and she begged the angels, please bring my children back to me. In a flash, eight billion children appeared before her in her third eye, for that is mom's mission, to return all her children to her, her love, her heart, her heaven. So to recruit all eight billion of them to her cult. Mom began mission in 2006. This was the hardest thing mom had to do. However, mom saw her children in the etheric as strong warriors agreeing to be her children and for her to go when they were young. In heaven, there was no attachment, and so mom embodying complete selflessness, stepping toward divinity. Hmm. I don't know why, but I feel like saying, peace be with you. And then back to me, the congregation. Say it with me. And then God said, I got coffee and whiskey, so fuck off. Amen. (laughs) Some other things I learned that I should teach my kids from this parenting handbook, that thoughts and doubts are not natural. They are created by the evil program the obscure beings made to control us. So, you know, got to tell Teddy that um, his thoughts and doubts do not matter. Anything that enters his brain besides the things I tell him and the ways I control him are simply not important. Um, I also learned that for a child to go back into balanced harmonics, frequencies of love and the unknown, they should try sun gazing. Like Superman will give you strength. It does not blind you. It is one of our most powerful healing tools. The sun sends you activation codes codes to rise to the frequency of love. You can sun gaze any time of day. Stare directly into the sun. As the sun enters your eyes, it burns away the dark within you. Hmm, wonder what their uh, stance is on eclipses. Eclipse, and eclipses, eclipse, whatever. You know, if you're experiencing postpartum depression, I thought this was a great tip. Postnatal depression can come in because wounds are brought to the surface and the new mother does not know how to love herself and nurture herself through them. <laughs> God, go play in traffic. Um, instead, confusion, spin, blame, and other low frequencies can hijack what should be an amazing healing journey. Adopt a healthy spiritual practice, particularly having a spiritual morning practice and a spiritual pre-bed practice. This can be a combination of prayer, singing, walking, the mirror technique, journaling or writing ceremonies. Experiment with what you personally connect with. Wow, thank you. I just poured out a whole bottle of Celexa. I'm inspired. And also apparently unworthiness is a deep feeling. You are not worthy of love, of acceptance. This usually stems from guilt or blame. There is something you've told yourself that you were to blame for, and you're holding guilt and shame towards yourself that makes you feel unworthy of receiving love. I mean, I, I gotta love the consistency. They just really love for it to be your fault. I mean, it's just, it's remarkable to read so much stuff about love and light and ascension and stardust or whatever the hell else it is. But it's like, it's your fault. Feel bad. Be guilty. Be shameful. Oh, you have postpartum depression? It's not the colossal drop in hormones you can't prevent. It's because new mother does not know how to love herself. I mean, I I can't. There was also like a really sad story that they didn't highlight, I don't think. I know I joke, but like, let me paint a picture for you of the type of situation that actually gets somebody involved with something like this. 
So this is in the Denver Post. So this guy, his last name's Witten. Why can't I find his first name? Anyways, this is how uh, he found himself involved with Love Has Won. Colorado is where Whitman went in May 2020 after he left his wife, two children, and a six-figure income in Mississippi to join Love Has Won. The group's members live stream multiple videos each day, and they last for hours. Those videos become the gateway into the cult, and they were how this person discovered Mother God. He was interested in political conspiracy theories such as QAnon, the baseless belief that cannibalistic liberal pedophiles run a global child sex trafficking ring. His readings about those conspiracies led him to love his one's Facebook page because the group mentions them in their videos, his wife said. She said her husband had served in the military and was a conservative Republican who believed bills should be paid on time. The couple lived in a $500,000 house where she stayed home to raise her family. The Denver Post agreed not to publish her husband's name since he is still recovering from his time in the cult. Oh, that's why I can't find his name. He was concerned about what fertilizer we were going to put on the grass that year, she said. His discovery coincided with the global coronavirus pandemic. Her husband lost his job and fell into a rabbit hole, spending more and more time online with Love Has One. Eventually, he signed up for personal etheric surgery sessions, a strange practice that believers say can remove negative energy and sickness from the body. Witten's husband paid $88 per session, during which he would surrender himself to Mother God. He participated in the sessions on behalf of her, their children, their mothers, and even neighbors. In total, he gave the cult $15,000 in like a very short period of time. His behavior at home became more unsettling. He slept less, and he started following a schedule aligned with seven colors of the chakra. So on certain days, he only ate foods and wore clothes that matched that day's color as ordered by the cult. He was just staring into the sun because they were telling him to do that to get light codes, Witten said. She enlisted the couple's mother and siblings for help. She read books and called psychiatrists, but nothing stopped her husband from falling deeper into the cult's control. She sent their children away because she feared he would start indoctrinating them. In mid-May 2020, the couple was leaving a law office parking lot in Mississippi when Witten's husband turned left out of the parking lot instead of following her in the other direction. She followed him as he drove to the airport, then confronted him and begged him to stay. Mother God called me home, he told her. A day later, Witten saw her husband appear on a live stream from Colorado. He wasn't visible on the next day's video, but her brother-in-law heard them talking about how his energy was not right, and he was on the wrong side of the mountain. They started calling the police. Then Witten got a phone call from a hospital, and a doctor told her that her husband had been found wandering in the wilderness alone, naked, dehydrated, and with cactus needles in his feet. He'd stared at the sun so much, he'd burned his eyes terribly, she said. Her husband signed paperwork, and the hospital released him before any family could get to Colorado. They then posted pleas for help on Facebook, and two Good Samaritans got involved. One volunteer from Crestone found Witten's husband wearing hospital scrubs and sitting under a bridge near Salida. A nurse from Denver drove there to take him back to a hotel in the city until his brother could fly out. When her husband awoke and saw his brother, he was disoriented. He thought he had ascended the world into this 5D matrix and had done what Mother God and Father God wanted him to do. We had to play that game with him. Yes, you did it. You're done. The brother drove Witten's husband home. He's still healing and he will be for a long time from this, she said. He has tons of shame, tons of guilt. He just can't believe what he did. He just can't fathom it now that his mind is clear. I think that's such an interesting example of like that phenomenon of something being so left it's right. And um, there's an interesting like commingling of worlds that kind of united during the pandemic 
under the premise of a lack of institutional trust, where suddenly people that were, you know, historically more defined by the straight and narrow were taking that void and that dissatisfaction and frustration and sinking their time into these theories and forums and like utter mania that ensued around that time as it related to QAnon and whatnot. And a lot of these groups inserted themselves and became soft places to land for the outlandish. And people felt like validated and justified in their frustration and in their belief that there was something as crazy as liberals were like drinking the blood of infants to stay young. And that, you know, at first COVID was a ploy because Trump was doing some operation that was going to set all the victims of child trafficking free and that there was going to be a a grid blackout. But it was in the name of finally, you know, shutting down pedophilia, clearing the swamp. That was a crazy time. And I just, yeah, I think that's a really terrifying example of a person that probably, like I said at the beginning, like you thought they were above all this stuff. But when something sparks your interest and you're seeking, you know, information, community, validation, purpose, whatever it is, you just never know how this can be received on the other side of the screen. And I just think it's a further example of how it's not just like kids we need to be worried about. We need to guard ourselves in terms of our sources of influence. And yeah, the uh, other tragic story about someone I know who got sucked in, I'll uh, share on Patreon because I think like it's important to hear like real life examples. Otherwise, these documentaries can kind of seem like a little too far-fetched from something that could ever happen to you or anyone you know or love. And I just don't think that's the case, sadly. But beyond, like, even Amy and her background, like, again, this kind of, like, operates under the illusion that she's the leader. But I actually don't really think that that's true. This is a quote from the director that I thought was interesting in terms of, like, who maybe was actually in power. She said that she was interested in the people around her, like Andrew said in episode one, he was the internet guy. Miguel handled the bank accounts, and Amy was the star of the show. In some ways, it's like she was the leader, or was she the talent? It's not entirely clear. As I examined the footage and the financial records of the group, I came to see Miguel as a kind of producer. I'm always very focused on the material circumstances of things, like whose name is on the bank account. Describing her as more of the talent than the leader is actually was a really helpful way for me to frame what I was thinking but couldn't really articulate, which is... It seemed like she was, yeah, more of a figurehead or the face of it. And it it didn't feel like I should even be calling her the leader because it seemed like, especially toward the end, she absolutely wasn't in control. The people around her seemed like they were aware of what was going on. But I think some of them like really wanted her to die and to take over because after she died, they split off into factions with suffocating speed. And Miguel put the money in the bag and stole the keys. So she calls Miguel the producer in the interview. But did you guys gather that from the maybe I missed it in the doc? I just kind of thought like, wait, we need a continuation of like, how has nobody heard from him? Like he was a right hand man. Everything was in his name. Um, Isn't it suspicious they didn't like go after him? Like, how did any of them have funding to start the spinoff businesses? Because they rebranded the way they supported themselves called Gaia's Whole Healing Essentials. They sold a bunch of stuff. Like I mentioned, plasma therapy, 
like essential oils and, as I mentioned, colloidal silver, uh, which was a big contributor to her death. And they peddled it as a miracle cure uh, for a lot of things, but specifically COVID. And the FDA declared, you know, in 1999 that that was unsafe to consume and went after them when they were hawking it as a cure for COVID as well. But they right after she died, like within days, uh, Gaia's whole healing essentials store was down. The former URL redirected to MotherEarthNaturalEssentials.org. And an article of amendment for that LLC got a name change to Mother Nature Natural Essentials LLC with a new name attached to it, Ryan Kramer, one of the main dudes, which still has an active website and almost 10,000 Facebook followers. Whoa, wait, Mother Nature Natural Essentials, vitamin E supplement on Amazon that has 500 reviews and four and a half stars. That's kind of interesting to like... When you think about how unregulated supplements are, it's interesting to think that you wouldn't even know you're supporting a cult. Oh, never mind. The about page of Mother Nature Natural Essentials LLC says they were started in 2015. And it's like a story about a girl who had open heart surgery and like a special vitamin E oil like healed her scar. So, OK, I don't I don't think this is them. Same name, though. Honestly, I'm relieved because I feel like we have a medicine cabinet full of vaguely earthy brands of vitamins and supplements that like, like normal stuff, you know, from Amazon because like vitamin E is not that like unusual. So I, I don't think I would overthink the brand. I would probably I just like look at reviews, which is a terrible idea. Yeah, that that concerned me for a second. It sounds like I'm about to launch into a ritual ad um, they didn't sponsor this week but i really do appreciate their transparent supply chain um because i knew the category was unregulated i just would assume these brands on amazon in this category would be like from a pharmaceutical company or a cbg brand or i don't know at least like a holistic mom and pop shop but i think i was startled at the idea of uh something you ingest being so homemade that it's like made by people doing meth in Oregon. Anyway, if you have bought vitamin E oil due to its stellar reviews, don't worry, you are not supporting a cult. Hi, it's Kate from the Beyond. I just feel like I need to tell you this. So I literally just said, don't worry, you're not supporting a cult. Um, But after I recorded this, the Instagram of the supplement company was still on my phone. And I, because I was trying to like figure out who owned it, and it just seemed like, you know, this nice family, whatever. But then I just, I don't know, was like poking around, went to the following list, found some of the uh, family members that are, you know, associated with this brand that is separate from the brand of the same name that the uh, Love is One cult sold supplements under. Upon a light scroll, I see something in the background of one of these family's photos. And it is a quote from one L. Ron Hubbard. And this girl is wearing a S-C-I-E-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y shirt. And then, upon more research, this company, I found them, like, through another dropshipper, and they ship out of Clearwater, Florida, which is, like, a major HQ of that cult. And anyway, I just thought that was a little bit funny because I literally said, don't worry, you're not supporting a cult. But it just so happens that this brand is also a cult. Different one. And the reason I spelled it is because if you listen to the Dolls of Our Lives pod, 
I was at Mary or Allison was like, I'm not talking about them on your podcast. They'll come after you. And I was like, oh, God, should this be my next rabbit hole? Researching the origins of Amazon's vitamin brands. Like, I just wonder if this is a common revenue stream of the types of businesses I do not want to be giving my money to. Kind of like um, when we realized that all of those loaded tea shops popping up everywhere were actually storefronts that were like some workaround for the Herbalife MLM being used as a recruitment tool. If you want to know more, please find the episode from 2021, What Would Jesus Brew? Anyway, just thought that was a little ironic that I was relieved that uh, you wouldn't be supporting a cult if you bought this, and you would be just a different one. Love ya! So lastly, I think that the doc ended kind of abruptly. And you see the, the body cam footage of Miguel, you know, at the police station. Between what he said and what the authorities saw for themselves, they arrested the seven adults in his residence or the residence in his name at that time. And they were indicted on counts of abusing and or tampering with a corpse, as well as two felony misdemeanors for child abuse. Um, Miguel's son was at the house and a 13-year-old girl was also at the home that was the daughter of one of the people staying there. The kids were sleeping when the warrant was executed, um, but it was dangerous for them to be so close to human remains, hence the charge. But the charges were later dropped. Miguel was saying that, like, his son was being held hostage there. But, yeah, so Miguel is the one that reported the body to the police, and he was not arrested, and he has since reportedly disappeared. And a defense attorney for one of the accused alleged in court that uh, Miguel had taken the group's money and left, according to the Denver Post. And it almost seems like the he was implying they were uh, holding his kid hostage and wanted the money. So he'd already taken the money at that point. And after the arrest, Love has won took its websites offline and renamed its YouTube and Facebook pages to 5D Full Disclosure. And they were still live streaming daily. But none of the core members had been seen on the live stream in weeks, I assume, while the arrests were going down. But members in South Africa and Australia were on the live streams, along with one woman in Memphis, Tennessee. And I just feel like the speed of the reorg is a bit suspicious. But one could also argue they thought she was going to die for like ever because she had this like slow, horrible decline. And theoretically, her death, while sad, was like a win for the cult because it was branded as her ascension and like she would save humanity and shit. So I don't know. I I think that with Miguel, he did this hour long interview um, when he went to the police department to report the dead body. And in that interview, he described in detail the events of that day and the day before in terms of what what he had been up to. And he tells them on several occasions he had no idea the Love His One group had brought Amy's body back with them from California. And he also said that he had been distanced from the group for a while. But then when I learned that not only was his name on like the nonprofit incorporation for Love His One. List, I mean, he was listed as president. He had filed the articles of incorporation for the nonprofit, the Crystal Schools, five days before 
he reported the body of Amy to the police, I just feel like he he knew that she was already dead. And to say he's distanced from the group, I mean, Miguel was not only letting the group stay in his home and what he told them, but his name is on everything. He he has control of all the money, every financial transaction, property deeds, business titles, like name, signature, like all these FDA letters I was going through. Like, okay, he can delete the websites and shut down some of the businesses and tell the cops like he doesn't know anything and has distanced himself and he knows Amy and, you know, he completely uh, minimizes any involvement he had with this group. But like, he was not only deeply involved, he held every main administrative role in establishing that cult since 2012. You can find footage of him saying that uh, one of the reasons he's a you know devout follower of Mother God is because she cured his cancer. As one does when they're like rocking their child to sleep, I read the hour-long transcript of Miguel reporting the corpse to the police. And it was it's a really weird interview. He says that he started distancing himself from the group when I started focusing on moving out and renovations. And then when he describes all of the random activities he did that, that day and the day before, there are things like dropping off a laptop. When they asked to who, it's like to a, a woman who needs it in Mexico, who like he doesn't know. It's like, why? So he's like dropping off computers. At one point, he, he says he took his friend to the airport and then they ask the name of the friend. But then he says he doesn't know it. So is it your friend? But then he says Bobby. But then he says he doesn't know her last name. But then he actually does say her last name. And then I looked her up. And this woman is a very active member in the cult community in the live stream. And do you remember earlier when I said that none of the people at or related to the people that got arrested in the cult were seen on the live stream in the following weeks, but people in other countries were? And then one woman was in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, guess where this friend whose name he couldn't remember was flying to who he took to the airport the morning that he reported the corpse. He said this friend was flying to Memphis, Tennessee. He was literally with one of the cult's members that morning. So did he distance himself or was he trying to help facilitate the distancing of people from the corpse? Was he trying to spare some people and take down ha- slash have others arrested? I almost felt like I almost was starting to feel gaslit by like reading how news outlets were reporting this when it was happening in 2021 because um they all kind of paint miguel slash michael as this like nice guy or friend that happened upon the corpse and reported the body and don't really dig in further but i found out all sorts of random stuff about him there was one daily beast article also when he reported the corpse to the police he Kept calling her Leah, L-I-A. But then a former LHW member named Andrew told the Daily Beast that Amy Carlson, Mother God, had at least a half a dozen different names. And he also suggested she may have had some kind of relationship with Miguel slash Michael, saying she used that name early on before I joined the team, but she was still using it when her and Miguel were together. So I don't know if they they were together together, romantically together, if he was in a early version of Father God, who the hell knows. 
I don't know. I, li- I literally consume zero true crime content, so I'm not very good at solving cases. But yeah, it's, it almost like seems so obvious that, you know, Miguel having control of the money and leaving makes him guilty in some way. And he like vanished, but he wasn't in, like, wouldn't he be pursued or investigated? Like, do they not care? I was relieved to learn from the Denver Post that Amy Carlson's family, like real family, was at, even at the time suspicious. Carlson's family and others want law enforcement to investigate further to figure out exactly how Amy Carlson died and to learn how the group manages its money and controls people's lives. I think I said earlier, were he and uh, Jason, Father God, like in cahoots to take over or... Was there just like an infrastructure set up, locked and loaded, because she literally had looked like a corpse for the better part of the past year, you know? Amy's family, in early May 2021, right after she died, said they believed that uh, Father God, Jason Castillo, and Lamb and Miguel slash Michael will become the new leaders, and that already followers are talking about Father God's wishes in their videos. But Jason, Father God, got arrested because of Miguel's reporting of the corpse. So I don't know if they they would be in cahoots. Maybe they didn't think they'd get arrested. Like they didn't think they were doing anything illegal harboring a corpse um, or like making it cross state lines without registering it. I think it could be possible that everyone, including Miguel, knew she had died. And they probably immediately were like, where's the money? And... You know, perhaps Miguel didn't trust some of the people in her most recent closest inner circle. He had been around a long time. Jason Father God wasn't in the picture until mid-2018. This Denver Post article says that's when things plunged into a darker, more bizarre world, when a man named Jason Castillo came into the picture as the next Father God. Regardless, I guess I shouldn't say he's so obviously guilty because it is possible that he's the good guy and... You know, Jason and co. were slowly poisoning her and then wanting the money and then he wouldn't give it to them. And now I'm not remembering if in the documentary they said why they drove the corpse in the Nissan Rogue from California to Colorado. I feel like it was positioned as like they wanted her to be at the cult's like former headquarters. But now I'm like, oh, if that home was owned by Miguel, she died, uh, you know, two, maybe even three weeks prior. And they reach out to Miguel. Everything's in his name. And they probably try to get the money. And when he wouldn't give it to them, they decide to go to Colorado to confront him um, and take the corpse along for the ride. Put sunglasses on it. Can't believe they got pulled over by the cops with a decaying corpse and the cop didn't notice. I also cannot believe no one commented on the scent. Like, oh, my God. Truly, like, I I thought, like, full apartment complexes started to, like, reek after even, like, two days of somebody dying in their home. I mean, there were, like, a lot of candles lit. And I don't know if they took certain measures to, like, preserve the body or... We're trying to, like, make a shrine of sorts, and I I don't know. I just literally cannot believe that they had a dead body that long, and not once did anybody comment on the smell. Anyways, what I was saying is, I don't remember if they know why they drove the corpse from uh, 
California to Colorado. But one guess could be that they were like, yeah, she finally died. Let's get the money. Miguel wouldn't give it to them. They drove to Colorado to the former headquarters that he owns. And I don't know if his son was there or what, but they were like holding his son hostage unless he gave them the money. And that could have been like a breaking point for him to completely sever ties and just at the risk of everything, turn them in to get his son back. I don't know his relationship with the son. I don't know. Like, I I don't know if that's naive to say, because if he like honestly wanted to help, like obviously he would have gotten Amy help like a long time ago. Uh, So he's an enabler in his own right to even have that stuff be in his name, you know, up until she died, even if he had distanced himself. But yeah, it's possible he was telling the truth and he was like, they're holding my son hostage. He told the um, investigators that it was because they wanted money from him. But in the tra- they don't delve into why they want money from him. Like it, it was it almost to me was like, I don't think that him turning them in was premeditated enough because his story was so bad and all over the place. And I thought he seemed guilty in it. Um, and the day's activities were so weird. And I think that he would have withheld a lot of that information if he had planned it and wanted to seem completely innocent. I don't know. So part of me is like, yeah, maybe he really did panic and was like, enough, I need my son. Maybe it was part of a long con, though. I don't know. Uh, Maybe he was the best friend and confidant and the only person she could trust with the money. And he didn't want to see all of these like leeches that contributed to her decline more recently, you know, stand to profit off of what they had built like together the past eight years. Because a lot of the people that were living with her at the time were newer. But who knows? It was kind of interesting to deep dive commenters on Reddit. I was looking through the cult forums from several years ago. So it's not like people that just saw this and are like trying to pretend to get in on the action. It's pretty fascinating, some of these, because it's like former members and people that used to be in the chats interacting, being like, dude, I remember you talking about these people in elaborate detail who we know more about now because all this stuff has come out. But at the time, there this was not like you, to know this level of detail, you would have had to be like kind of in the group, in the live streams and aware of kind of the dynamic of the group. It just it seems like stuff that couldn't be made up. But alas, we know it very well could be. This is unverified. But some of the people that would have more detailed and thoughtful comments, I would click their name and go through their comment history, you know, going back years and see all of the stuff they had posted to various groups that asked about this cult. Stuff about Miguel, like, made it pretty clear he he was the operation. Like, um, this one says it's Michael slash Miguel Lamboy who is truly running the show. Amy will defer to his judgment in all moments, and he is the true snake in the grass and the brains behind the operation. He's very intelligent and clever. His bond with Amy is her most critical asset, and when she feels threatened in any way, she will go to him and he will set her straight again. Without Michael, this group would not be the same. He is a most critical component, more so than even the current father god. This person said, Michael Silver was always the darkest energy in that home, and he kept Amy squarely rooted in the delusion despite my my many efforts to break her free of it. I came close several times and even got her to admit she wasn't actually the mother of all creation and that she did, in fact, still have a significant ego. When she came to Florida alone and left them behind, I thought I'd finally help set her mind free, but she never did slash could get rid of Michael. Michael always roped her back in. I lay a lot of what has happened at his feet. 
If anyone was equipped to get her help, if they truly cared, he would have made sure she was receiving medical attention. None of this needed to happen this way, and it's very sad. If not for the delusional titles and all that, the team I was with back then had the potential to be something awesome, and in some moments it was fun. I didn't follow her after I left, but somewhere along the lines it went very, very wrong. This person posted after she died in this thread, this group turned into something so dark and deluded. Not that the titles weren't always delusional, but five or six years ago, something like this was not possible. Nobody who was there when I was would have done anything like this, and Amy would have been in a hospital as soon as her health issues appeared. They didn't love her. They loved the idea of what she portrayed herself to be. In truth, they used her and she used them. Miguel, I think, dissolved Love Has Won, the organization that, like, wouldn't carry on. And the spinoffs that still teach her stuff and still seem to be up and running are, and people that are active believers are the two that you've heard in the clip earlier that were heavily featured in the documentary that went by Aurora and Hope. Their rebrand is called 5D, full disclosure. Exact same teachings as Love Has, has Won. They offer online sessions, podcasts, YouTube shows, merch. And Father God leads a Colorado-based offshoot from the group called Joy Reigns. It says Mama and Papa have done everything possible to save us and have successfully done so, so we can complete our task of remembering our creators. Oh my gosh, I can't go down the Father God current rabbit hole. But Jason Father God's Instagram is truly, like, I had to turn it off. I was worried I was being, like, hypnotized or something. The videos are so weird. And there's this, I guess, follower of his is in, like, Every video is the main poster to the account named Luna. She just does weird stuff like this one video I just watched. She was saying like, oh, the camera just turned on. That's so weird. And then like in a half second, it flashes like a screenshot of a money transfer to Lauren Suarez, who is Lauren uh, that went by, was it Aurora or Hope? Now I'm forgetting. One of those two girls that started the 5G offshoot that I thought was separate from Jason Castillo, they must still be in contact because that was a video from April. It just seemed like they were flashing that really quickly for some reason, but I don't know what the reason was. His group, Joy Reigns, he still like talks about himself as father and does her teachings and lol www.facebook.com slash father god of all creation. Quite the handle. But then on the Love Reigns website, Father God's like offshoot, their services are Christic Awakening, Mom and Dad Sharing with You, Schumann Reading Prayer, Cuddle Communion Parenting Class, Ask God a Question, Galactic Children's Corner, 911 God Call, and an Energy Reading Report. Dang. You clicked on the Cuddle Communion and you, you donate $33.33 for what they are calling therapy. It says, as humanity's best therapists, counselors, psychologists, doctors, ultimate love experts, mother, father, are apt and specific to every relationship on the planet. And they're equipped to uh, therapize you through speaking, seeking spiritual truth, discovering meaning, infidelity, tragedy, trauma, substance abuse, physical abuse, verbal abuse, disagreements with finances, lifestyle, parenting choices, chemistry imbalances, repairing trust, commitment imbalance, communication imbalance, control, power struggles, major life adjustments, frequent conflict, stress, and guilt. They really do it all. Anyway, I hope you know that like, I, I don't care if you're into kind of out there stuff or like woo-woo as they say, like, but I do kind of care if you're like on meth and charging people to be therapized through like substance abuse. Among other things, you're unqualified to counsel people about. 
I, I think it's really interesting how no matter what, it like always goes into like medical and or therapy related territory. And the people that need it the most are the ones doing the therapizing. And we have a mental health crisis in this country and people need help and life is hard. And I get why people pursue it, but I don't get the pure evil of the people administering it. And even though this is an extreme case, we really like this is not uncommon to have these guru types take off online and suck people into their web. Do I feel crazy watching manifesting babes and light workers try to sell courses that teach me how to sell courses? Like, yeah, I don't like things that are exploitative, but I don't care what you do or what you believe if it's not bothering anybody. Whatever helps you get through life and cope and find joy and hope in tough times. But I will say my new pet peeve is this term light worker because I just I see that term a ton lately, but not in kind of narrow culty type vibe places amongst like white millennial women who like post about how they manifested their Kia Telluride. And I just feel like those terms that sound harmless used by people with big followings kind of in the mainstream, I don't know, they feel like slippery slopes. Tread lightly is all I'm saying. Uh, because where all of this started with Amy Carlson in 2006 is when she found a dude on lightworker.org who claimed he was God and I think is the first person that really made her lean into the whole mother of God thing. And that's where all of this started before it ended so tragically. And yeah, you just never know. Anyway, uh, remember earlier I was kind of saying like I was kept thinking about like how back to back I was watching a, both a male and female cult leader in these documentaries and their fates were so different. And like, you know, sometimes when a female leader kind of like is able to run a scam and a Delvey Elizabeth Holmes type, people are kind of like, yes, gaslight like gatekeep girl boss. And, you know, girl boss is kind of like a funny thing because it's suggesting that, you know, your avenue to success was contingent upon you kind of holding the same posture or behaving similarly to men not being successful regardless of your gender because the goal is just like boss right but i i love the colloquial phrase of girl boss but i just kept, I kept thinking the whole time how oh this is an example of a female leader that people aren't going to be like yes girl boss because she was a little bit different and I actually think it, it was an example of something that was, unfortunately, traditionally female in a sense in terms of who we like historically revere as feminine icons that kind of bummed me out. And I was revisiting interviews the director had done, and I think this might have been Vanity Fair. But she says something that that kind of reinforces this in a slightly different manner that I thought I would share. Looking at a cult with a female leader really interested me because most of the time when we look at cult stories, it's the same yarn about a megalomaniac male who brings people to him and the cult implodes because of sex, power, and money. I wish Twin Flames would have imploded. This is a case where I genuinely could not tell who was steering the ship. Trying to figure that out really interested me, and so did looking at this through the lens of the limits of female power. The way that Amy believed she could take on the pain of the world through her body and the cult saw her as a physical vessel for the pain of humanity felt so specifically female. 
I couldn't figure out if it was fair to say that, you know, there was something gender based about their fates, but it supports my hypothesis that it's not about who Amy was. It's it's not even about what she did. It's about how she was used for this organization's mission that didn't earn her really the money and power. It wasn't even like in her name. She didn't live a lavish lifestyle like these dudes in other cults do. It's not about the limitations of female power. It's that she never was in power. She was a figurehead. She was a mascot. And the people in power, per her comment, I think were Miguel, who stole the money and everything was in his name, and uh, Jason, Father God. Now that I think about it, it, it kind of does seem more like she had handlers. I saw something where they were talking about how, if you watch the Dr. Phil interview closely, her eyes are constantly like going off to the left and somebody's telling her what to say, kind of coaching her in a, in a spooky way. And that he literally, Jason literally never left her side and is often seen like giving her drinks. And, you know, it's possible he was a major source of her decline or at the very least enabling her decline. And Miguel is like this really interesting character that I didn't feel super clear on Miguel. I don't know if you guys did watching the documentary, but now that they've done more research, it really seems like he was kind of the mastermind. Last week, um, Elise was saying women are raised for goodness, men are raised for power. It's almost like women are respected for goodness, men are respected for power. And the people who were actually in control, her followers, the two men, and her core group, what did they call it, like first ground crew? Whether they all realized it or not, it's like in order to make this female-led cult work, one route to achieving idolization is this image of self-sacrifice. And it's like when people talk about how women are amazing because they sacrifice so much, people are familiar with women bearing the burdens of others and taught to revere it as a feature and not a flaw. And it, yeah, it kind of makes sense to me that the primary way this cult was able to monetize and grow was the constant threat that Mother God's life was at risk to engage and control people. Like they would say, humanity wants to kill mom. There are dark forces trying to drain and kill her. She, you know, her being, her being sick, persecuted, and threatened were constantly recurring themes on the live streams. It's kind of a really sad example of her following, reinforcing the idea that a woman will be like respected if she is first and foremost, self-sacrificial. And like, I'm sorry, I don't care how brainwashed you are. You're not dumb. They, those people all had to know she wasn't sick because she was taking on humanity's pain. She was sick because of, of drinking and of colloidal silver and of whatever the hell else was going on. Um, but her acolytes, if you will, kept saying on their live streams, like, Look at, you know, she's sicker and sicker. She looks worse and worse. She's emaciated. She's blue. Like, look at her. She's this is because of humanity's pain. Like, we need your money. We need your time. We need your investment. Here's a GoFundMe. And and as she deteriorates in real life, the people surrounding her like claim she can't seek outside medical care, 5D medical care, if she is to complete her mission. So to complete the mission, they basically have to let her die. Because if she didn't, everything that they believed wouldn't be true. 
it, it sounds like at one point she asked to go to a hospital. And they were like, well, that's not what she really wants. She's not well. One of the many times my jaw dropped was when one of the still active believers was like, yeah, you know, at one point, Mother God was like, what if I made this all up? What if I'm full of shit? Like, it, and I forget the exact verbiage, but it was it basically sounded like a late in, you know, an end of days confession. And her believers were like, silly mom. She, she, she does this. She has these like spirals where she's not herself. So you have to ignore her. Like, what the fuck? It's like, are these people so far gone that they really believe that? Or did they know that people might not be interested in a mother God who wasn't frail and suffering? So they kept her that way to exploit it for either views or money or recruitment or, yeah, even just their own selfish need for their beliefs to be fulfilled. In an October 15th live stream, two women talked to viewers about her health and explained that she would never go to a doctor because the doctor would not understand the process of ascending. There's been moments when mom has asked us to take her to a community hospital. Nope, a follower says. There's no way. We know how a hijacking works. They're so attached to, like, what she represented. And the idea that her death was something to be celebrated as, like, an ascension and a fulfillment of a mission, that in her human moments of being like, I need a, I'm sick, I need to go to hospital, I need help, they didn't even listen to her. And it does seem more like she had handlers. And it makes it even sadder, almost in kind of like that Britney Spears sort of way, where it's like, perform for us and we won't look out for your best interest, but we'll take everything you have and pretend you're empowered through your persona while we disempower you at every turn with our control of you while like everybody thinks you're controlling them. Just interesting that, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's not like groundbreaking, but uh, it's kind of sad and makes me feel like, yeah, she's not a great person, but it's a, an interesting example of a cult where I, I think the people in power were the followers and not the leader because the followers self-fulfilled the mission of her death. Even when she asked for help, they were so far gone or so committed to her dying, they completely ignored her request as a human to fulfill her role as a god. I think in most circumstances... Regardless of your gender, someone suffering before your eyes is a tragedy. But I guess only a woman's pain can be uniquely glorified as a thing of beauty. And I can attest to this as I very recently gave birth. But that's an interesting thing about womanhood. When it comes to the things we endure, there's often a fine line between miserable and magical. Don't you love how by the time I finish these episodes, so tired. I'm talking at a dulcet tone. I just don't make sense. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, you guys, I can feel it coming. I'm trying to push it down, but she's taken over me. I, I, I couldn't help but wonder. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I'm not, because I thought of this last night. When it comes to self-sacrifice, how do we try and be a good mommy without one day becoming their mummy. Anyway, you guys, fascinating look into Love Has Won's demise. Thanks for joining me as we figured out why love was lost. It's wild, it's tragic, it's crazy that these people are still able to profit off of this stuff. 
So tread lightly out there in cyberspace. As a reminder, if you want to hear about the other cult that I recorded a shorter episode about, that's on patreon.com slash be there in five. About, um, you know, very early days of when I had my podcast before I started talking about cults, part of my obsession uh, was sparked by an incident that affected somebody I went to high school and college with involving a cult leader. And it's like incredibly tragic. And I just I'm not trying to like start beef with active scary gurus. If it's not already up, it will be at the latest EOD Monday. So just check back soon. I already recorded it. I also forgot, like we talked about Twin Flames. It feels like a long time ago. This was probably such a confusing lesson. And for that, I am sorry. Follow me at Kate Kennedy on Instagram. Rate review five stars. It would be so helpful. You can just have five stars on Spotify. It's so easy. Reviews are so important. Charting is a journey and it has a lot to do with reviews, apparently. So yeah, if you're into this podcast, that'd be chill. No pressure, though. Um, I appreciate you guys joining me for a classic BTI5 deep dive, each more disorganized than the last. And if I may leave you with one rule of my cult, if your Instagram bio says you're a light worker, you better be an electrician, live in a lighthouse, or have a propensity to approach your workday with a level of leisure that generates you a pretty light workload. Otherwise, you're full of shit. God bless. As always, let me know your thoughts, and I'll let you know mine. I'll be there in five. I swear.